This is They Create Worlds, Episode 12, History of Acclaim, The Rise. If anybody wants to find me, I'll be in the last place you would look. In a place where people used to be, a land that's called reality, you'll find me there. Welcome to They Create Worlds. I'm Jeff, and I'm joined by my co-host, Alex. Hello. Today we will be covering the history of Acclaim, which was founded by two members of Activision, right? Well, they had worked for Activision. They didn't go there directly from Activision. Uh, Basically, Acclaim Entertainment is a company that was founded by two gentlemen named Gregory Fishback and Jim Swaroposky. Mm -hmm. And Greg Fishback had been the president of the international division of Activision. So he was the guy that was really responsible for going out and making deals with people outside the United States to keep product flowing into Activision and, of course, also making sure that Activision products were being distributed outside the United States, sold outside the United States. So he had a background, actually, in the music industry, which is really not surprising. The CEO of Activision, as you may recall, Jim Levy, also came out of the music industry. Right, right. He was a lawyer and an entertainment lawyer. And he actually served as a manager for the Steve Miller Band, which was a very big band in the 1970s Hmm. with hits like Rockin' Me and Fly Like an Eagle, etc., etc. And, of course, being in the music industry, he knew Jim Levy because Jim Levy was at GRT, which was one of the very important audio cassette companies. As we discussed before, the record labels didn't want to be in the cassette business, so they had subcontracted out cassette rights to companies like Jim Levy's GRT. So Greg Fishback and Jim Levy knew each other. And when Jim Levy was kind of getting the whole Activision thing up and running, he was thinking of the business very much like a record business and thinking of his talent very much like recording artists. And so Greg Fishback was an entertainment lawyer, someone who kind of knew what some of that contract language looks like when you're dealing with talent and that kind of business. So Jim went to Greg and had him consulting on some of their early contracts and some of their early deals. Now... Not too long after that, Jim decided that he really wanted Gregory's expertise in-house at Activision. So what he did is he hired him as this president of International. And the really big thing he did at the beginning of Activision is he is the guy that got the European side of Activision up and running. Activision wasn't going to be doing its own distribution in Europe, but they needed to have companies over there that could get their product into the European marketplaces. And... Gregory Fishback had relationships with all the guys over there because of his record business experience. And so he went over and he made major distribution deals in all the major markets like Germany and France and the United Kingdom. And so got Activision's product moving. A little later on, as Activision's going into the computer game business after the crash, then he's also working uh, contacts again. And he's sourcing talent in computer game companies to create product for Activision. Another thing is that he was taking a private jet ride with the head of Columbia, the movie studio, and the guy said to him, you've absolutely got to license this movie that we're doing and make a game out of it. And Gregory Hmm. Fishback's like, okay. He's like, what is it? He's like, well, it's this thing called Ghostbusters. Oh, dear. Not that game. (laughs) Yeah, so, well, I don't know which game you're referring to because there were a few different versions of it. Well, most of the ones that I know of were pretty bad. I think the only good version... What, ironically enough, came out on the Sega Genesis. 
the Commodore version was pretty bad. The Nintendo version is notorious for being very bad. Yes, the Nintendo version definitely is. Many people consider the Commodore version to be a pretty classic game, though. That doesn't mean you have to like it. I'm just saying <laughs> that... <laughs> yeah, I think I actually still have it over there in the uh, pile of... And, floppy disks of and we're talking about games. the original Ghostbusters. This is the one where you're driving the car around, upgrading the car. Yep. Yeah, just making sure, because there was also, of course, a Ghostbusters 2, which is a lot less well-regarded. It's, you know, your mileage may vary, and basically what happened there is they got the rights to it very late in the process. I don't think anyone at Columbia realized what they had. Mm -hmm. It's not like there was this big multimedia campaign to get Ghostbusters out in as many formats as possible. So it was a pretty last-minute deal that well, got I mean them... Ghostbusters, when it originally came out, even though it's a classic now, the executives and everything didn't think it was going to be a big major hit. Right, exactly. Which, of course, it was then. It was number one for weeks and weeks. Mm -hmm. One of the highest grossing movies of the year. So they hadn't really planned much in advance, so they got that license pretty late. And David Crane, one of the co-founders of Activision, basically there was no time to create an original game or... If you did try to create original game, you'd probably end up with another E.T. fiasco. And no one wants that. <laughs> exactly. So what they did is he already had a game, I think it was called Car Wars, in the works, where you had this car, you were driving around, you had weapons on it, and you would upgrade it over time, you know, gather money and upgrade the car with new stuff. So since he already had that in place, and the Ecto-1 was one of the very memorable pieces of that Ghostbuster movie... He decided, well, I'll take this Car Wars game that I already have in development, and then we'll turn it into this uh, Ghostbusters game. So that's why there was a lot of focus on that and less focus on, you know, the guys themselves or on plot and whatnot. And it was very successful. The game sold a couple of hundred thousand copies, which on a computer platform at that time is a huge uh, amount of copies. That's kind of interesting. Uh, you mentioned that they retooled a game that they were designing for something else. Mm -hmm. I know in a lot of other games, when they're doing franchise cost merchandising, they will take some other game that they're already working on and then retool it and put it in the theme of whatever it is that they're wanting to do. You can sort of see that with Rambo, the uh, original NES game for that. That one had a lot of striking resemblances to Zelda 2. If you really look at it, floating skulls and... Striking resemblance is being very generous, Jeff. They ripped off Zelda 2 <laughs> completely and utterly. Well, and actually, that was an acclaimed game. I mean, they, they're they the ones that released it. <laughs> they had the Rambo license. So they did. that's very topical. <laughs> so the thing about licensed games is there's always a fixed deadline. At the end of the day, with an original property, I mean, a lot of companies, especially publicly traded company, will feel like they have to make their quarter. Mm -hmm. So they will push to release a game before it's ready to make their targets sometimes. But theoretically speaking, you can release an original game whenever you like. Really? Well, just in terms of games not ready yet, okay, we can give you a yeah. few more months. Okay. Because so. uh, a delay is a few months of bad games forever. Now, right. plenty of companies still rush original games, too, if they need to make their quarter, especially if they're publicly traded. But the thing about a licensed game is there is a set release date. Nobody's going to care about your game, in most circumstances, months after the movie has been released. You want it to launch exactly when the movie comes out or thereabouts within a week or so. Exactly. Now, there have been exceptions. GoldenEye kept getting delayed, 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 and so it was released nowhere near when the movie came out. Mm -hmm. But that game was such a solid game that it was a hit anyway, and people bought it. But generally speaking, if you have a licensed property, no one's going to care about it six months after the movie's out. And the other problem is 
it's not like you can start the game super early because you can't have a license until there's something to license. Right. They had to have a game that something to make a game out of. And if the license isn't there, whatever the franchise is, and then you'd have to come up with a design and something that's thematic to the movie and they might not even have the movie done yet. Exactly. Or all the plot points. So that's you why were... sometimes you have uh, some movies where the plot of the game has nothing to do with the movie and seems completely alien. That can happen, absolutely. So there's always a time constraint when it comes to licensed properties. You always have just a very small window to do them. And Ghostbusters was an exceptionally small window because normally the license is handed out near the beginning of the movie-making process, and in this mm -hmm. case, the license was handed out near the end of the process. But still, it's a very small window. So there quite simply is no time to do much. This is why most licensed games end up being rather horrible. Usually all you can do is copy the mechanics from something else because you don't have time to come up with something original. And usually you don't have time to polish it, to iterate and iterate and iterate and make something good. So that's pretty much what happens. It's all tied to the cycle and uh, that can be pretty brutal. But Ghostbusters was a big success. People really wanted that game. It sold a few hundred thousand copies and Greg Fishback is the reason they got that product. Then the other co-founder, Jimmy Skoroposky, he started out as a buyer for Macy's. So he was mm -hmm. the video game buyer for Macy's during the height of the uh, first Atari market. Mm -hmm. And basically what happened, and this is a story that's not very well known, but I've gotten this from both Jim Levy and Jim Skoroposky, both of whom I'm inter I've interviewed. And Jim Skoroposky basically saved Activision. Really? Mm-hmm. We may not have still had Activision today without Jimmy Skoroposky. Activision was founded by some very smart people, some very good people, but they really didn't understand retail distribution. They weren't salespeople. And during the period where the Atari market was doing very well, that was fine because there was a shortage of product and there was an excess of demand from retailers and from consumers. So you did not have to be a savvy salesperson to get your product into the stores. Stores were coming to you, retailers were coming to you and begging you for product, hmm. and you would basically sell to the retailer everything you had, and then most of that would sell through. Mm -hmm. Well, then the crash happened, right? So there was an oversaturation in the market, and there was a glut of product, and that product was not moving, uh, leading to deep discounts and leading to returns and leading to the publishers collapsing, et cetera, et cetera. And so Activision, just like everybody else, was caught in this. Activision had only planned to be about 10 to 15% of the market, Mm -hmm. Jim Levy always believed in growing the company fairly conservatively. This is one of the reasons why Activision survived the crash. One reason that we discussed before was that they managed to go public, which meant they had cash. Mm -hmm. The other thing that was kind of critical to Activision surviving the crash is they never grew too big too fast. Hmm. When the crash happened, obviously, everybody was too big because there just wasn't a market anymore, which is right, why they had losses. Themselves. But they could have grown at three or four times the rate they did just based on the revenue they were bringing in in the early days of the crash. Hmm. And Jim Levy didn't do that. Jim Levy was very conservative in growing the company. So he had only planned to take about 10 to 15% of the VCS market, VCS cartridge market, in that 1982-1983 period, which was really a pretty modest share of the market considering how well-regarded Activision was and how good the Activision games were. Hmm. Still, though, when there was about 200% of market demand, mm -hmm. 10 to 15% is still 
too much. They still had too much product. So now there's too much product in the market. You have retailers trying to return it. And Activision really has no idea how to handle this Mm -hmm. because there's no one particularly savvy in retail sales in the company. There's some good marketers. There's some good product developers, obviously, but they don't really have that sales expertise. So Jim Levy turns to Jim Skorposky, who he knows because he had been the buyer at Macy's. Right. And Jimmy Skorposky is an East Coast guy. He had no real interest in being the Activision sales guy. He didn't want to come West. Mm -hmm. He didn't want to kind of get involved in that side of things. He had been a buyer, and then he was becoming a... He had kind of gone out on his own and become a regional distributor on the East Coast and was doing his own kind of firm. He didn't want to be involved in this, but Jim Levy really felt he had no one else to turn to. So uh, Skorposky said, okay, I'll come. I'll do this, but I'll only do this for you know a year or so mm-hmm. just to kind of straighten things out. And that's what he, out. I'll, yeah. I'll do. And, and that's exactly what he did. He came west. He became the sales guy, the head of sales for... Activision, and he helped negotiate with retailers. He helped get as much of this product moved through the channels as he could. He helped uh, negotiate the returns and the markdowns and all of these things to try to get Activision as good a terms as he could under the circumstances. I mean, you're not going to get great terms because it's a disaster. And retail at this time did not absorb disasters. If there was Mm -hmm. a disaster, it was the product guy's fault, not the retailer's fault. And that was true in everything. I mean, that's not just true in video games. That's true in toys. That was true in clothing. I mean, it was true in everything. Retailers don't absorb these losses. Right. The product guys absorb these losses. Jimmy Skorposky came out, and he did all he could to kind of cushion the blow. And Jim Levy is pretty convinced that that saved Activision. I mean, obviously, they still had uh, 16 quarters of consecutive losses, but the losses would have been a lot worse if Jimmy hadn't been there and, and maybe the whole thing falls apart. Right. And so it wouldn't have survived. And Exactly. So uh, Skorposky's there for about a year, 1983, 1984 range. Mm-hmm. And then he leaves. He goes back east to do his own thing where he's doing his own kind of distribution company and his own marketing company back east. Right. So he's out of the picture. Greg Fishback stays there much longer. He stays there through the home computer transition. He's very important in getting making contact with what's going on in Europe because at this time Europe has a pretty thriving home computer industry. It's mostly on different platforms. They do have the Commodore 64 there and the Commodore 64 is very popular there. But other than that, it's the ZX Spectrum, which is something that never comes to the United States. It's a very low cost computer and not something that the American market was really interested in. Timex tried to bring it over to the United States on behalf of Sinclair, which is the company that actually created it. And and it didn't go over well. The American market, there was more money, quite frankly, in the American market. In the American market, you could sell a two or $300 home computer. It was a viable thing for the market to absorb. The average family maybe be able to swing that. Exactly. Or at least the average... Uh, upper middle class family could, which is really what these home computers were selling to. In Britain, that was really not a viable proposition. The computers needed to be even cheaper. So the ZX Spectrum was a cheaper machine than the Commodore 64 or the Apple II or those kind of things. And since it was cheaper, it was also far more primitive. It had kind of wonky graphical capabilities. There was a lot of 
a tribute clash where if colors got too close to each other from different objects, it would not end well. And the keyboard was not a touch type keyboard. It was a very kind of weird keyboard and that kind of stuff. So it's not something that appealed to the American market. It was too cheap for the American market. But for the British market, where there wasn't as much capital going around, the, it was a big deal. Mm -hmm. And so there was a very thriving home computer software industry over there. And of course, Greg Fishback, as the president of International for Activision, is the guy that's out there kind of getting to know these guys and getting some of that product in. So that was something that was important for them. It wasn't the majority of what Activision was selling, but they set up a label called Electric Dreams uh, over there with uh, the help of a guy named Rod Cousins, who comes becomes important to the Acclaim story later, which is why I bring him up now. And mm -hmm. they had some stuff moving in, and they were moving some stuff out there. And then in uh, 1986, a Japanese company called Nintendo comes a-calling to Activision. Mm -hmm. And Nintendo is about to release a console in the United States. They'd already test-marketed it in New York City in 1985. Then in early 1986, they expanded their test market uh, out to a few other places like Los Angeles, and they're getting ready to do a nationwide launch by the end of the year. And so, of course, they want software. Mm -hmm. And so they're going around to some of the prominent home computer software companies, which, of course, Activision is by this time, having made that transition to home computers, and trying to get some of these companies interested in making product for the Nintendo Entertainment System. And Greg Fishback, of course, takes that meeting because he's the president of International. And so since Nintendo's a Japanese company... You want to have the international guy on the meeting. Exactly. So he's the guy that takes that meeting, and he listens to the pitch by Lincoln and Arakawa, the guys that are kind of running Nintendo of America. And he says, absolutely not. This is a terrible idea. We do not want to get involved in this cartridge market again. And there's no reason to believe that Nintendo's still going to be here 20 months from now. So why are we doing this? And that's the recommendation he sends back to... HQ, and so Activision declines at this point to get into the NES market. They mm -hmm. get in a couple years later, as we discussed in our Mediagenic episode, but they don't get in at this point. So not too long after that, Gregory Fishback gets his dream job. Hmm. He becomes the president of RCA International. Really? Exactly. The record company, RCA. Because remember, he came out of the music industry. Right, so he really wanted to stay, probably stay in the music industry, and the fact that he can be the president of RCA, that's... President of RCA International. International. Yeah, the international division of RCA. So he leaves Activision in 1987 to kind of do that. Maybe it was late 1986, I'd have to check, but around there. And that's all great until Bertelsmann, which is a major European German record company, mm -hmm. buys out RCA. The whole company. Yeah, they bought RCA Records. Okay. They didn't buy the, uh, the RCA, which is more than just the record company, but they bought RCA Records. Okay. The, the subsidiary. Mm-hmm. And Bertelsmann's already in Europe. Bertelsmann's mm -hmm. already international. Yep. They don't need a president of international. So, so he's out of a job. Yeah, Gregory Fishback. Dream job. Gregory Fishback is out of a job, and he needs something else to do. Meanwhile, Jimmy Skoroposky's running his sales rep company, you know, where a sales representative is a middleman, there are more than two ways to do sales, but there are two kind of primary ways that sales are done by a major company. They either do sales direct, which mm -hmm. means that they do all the accounts in-house. So they'll have a guy in charge of handling 
Walmart. They'll have a guy that's in charge of handling Target. They'll have a guy who's in charge of handling small distributors in or small retailers in the Northeast. They'll have a guy that's responsible for handing, handling small distributors in the Southwest, mm-hmm. you know, direct sales. Or if you don't want to have all of that overhead within your own organization, and that's a lot of overhead, especially if you're a, a smaller company, then you get sales representatives to do that work for you. A sales rep is a middleman that takes commission and goes out and represents your product for you. And a sales rep organization will represent a lot of different companies. So that's how they get their revenue is they take commissions off of multiple products Mm -hmm. and then they go out and sell those products. And the benefit to the product developer is that they don't have to have this massive sales organization, which is important. So Skorposky's got this rep organization on the East Coast. And one of the companies that he is repping is Capcom. Capcom. Exactly. And Capcom, of course, is on the Nintendo Entertainment System. Of course. So by 1987, it's pretty clear that the NES is a sizable hit. They have a good Christmas in 86. 87 is when they really cement themselves, but they do very well in 1986. Mm -hmm. And so this is becoming a big thing. And so, you know, Jimmy and Greg know each other, and Greg's looking for something to do. And Jimmy's like, you got to check out this NES thing. It is blowing up huge. I'm repping Capcom, and they're making all kinds of money on this, and this is a business we should get in. Gregory's like, oh, okay. So, you know, he checks it out at the CES, you know, Consumer Electronics Show, and it's like, yeah, this is a big thing. And they decide, yeah, this is a business we can get involved in. So the guy that, you know, not not even a year ago is telling Activision, don't, no don't way touch this Nintendo thing. Don't touch this Nintendo thing, is now, oh, my God, we've got to get into this Nintendo thing. Though, I mean, I don't mean that to make fun of him, because in all fairness, it was the right call. Activision didn't need that risk, especially when they were still trying to move their 2600 inventory out, which they couldn't Mm -hmm. sell. It was the exact right call at the time. It's the right call. He did the call that's good for the company he was representing at the time. Now that he's off on his own and he's getting this offer, hey, come in, check this out. I'd like you to work with me to get this thing going. And he goes in, looks at it. Okay, for a startup position, what we want to do, we want to partner in on this. This is a good idea. Exactly. The situation on the ground has changed. So they decide to form this company together. They meet and uh, they make up most of the business plan on a napkin <laughs> at a restaurant somewhere on the <laughs> East Coast while they're meeting to kind of figure this thing out. You got to shave that napkin and frame it and put it <laughs> on their wall. Exactly. And they're equal partners in the thing, Fishback and Skorposky. They decide on the name because Gregory really felt that they needed to be either at the beginning or the end of the alphabet. He didn't Mm. care whether they were A or Z, but nobody remembers what's in the middle. (laughs) They remember what they see first and they remember what they see last. If you're talking about, you know, in a phone book or in a brochure for a trade show or in a list of developers, whatever you're looking at, you kind of remember what you read first. You kind of remember what you read last. And then it's kind of a blur in the middle, right? I'm not sure about for me, but uh, I'll take the sales guy's word for it. Mm-hmm. And so they had to be at the front of the, the bottom, A or Z. And so they were just going through names, and they decided that Acclaim sounded like a great one. That comes right at the top of the alphabet. It's ahead of Activision. Mm-hmm. And that's what they decided to call it, Acclaim Entertainment. It's not a name that necessarily means anything. It's just that Acclaim is a very positive word. It's speaking of... You know, congratulating someone or rewarding someone for a job well done. It's about renown for being good at something. So that's a nice word. Entertainment, it shows the business they're in. They're in the entertainment business, and they're not pigeonholing themselves 
as a video game company or as a technology company. They are an Any kind entertainment, of entertainment company. they want to do. Exactly. So Acclaim Entertainment. Gregory Fishback is a really good relationship guy. Mm-hmm. He's a master licensing guy. He's a master relationship builder. That's what he brings to the table. Jimmy's just a great salesman and a great numbers guy, great mm-hmm. finance guy. So that's what he brings. So that's two of three of what they need to have a company like this. Third thing they need is a marketer. Neither mm-hmm. of them is really a marketer. So they go to another guy that had been at Activision named Robert Holmes, who mm-hmm. had been a marketing guy at Activision. And so they knew him. And so they brought him in to be the president of the company and to handle the marketing. And he wasn't he wasn't so sure about this at first. He'd seen the video game thing mm-hmm. come and go just like they had. But they sold him hard. And so he came in and he wasn't a partner in the company, but he was a critical third pillar of the management team. It was really a triumvirate in the early days of the company with both Gregory Fishback and Jimmy Skoroposky were co-chairmen of the board. Mm -hmm. Then Gregory Fishback was the CEO. Robert Holmes was the president and Jimmy Skoroposky was executive vice president. Hmm. And between them, they kind of had all you needed to run a business. And this business was not going to be an, a development business. This was going to be a licensing and publishing business. They had no interest in having their own internal product development, and for years, Acclaim did not have any internal product development. So they were more like EA, where we find the developers, and instead of them developing it in-house? They, that... they, weren't, they weren't even like EA. Really? EA set itself up on a model of, we are going to empower artists to make original product. So the product is EA's product, and EA is completely guiding the development of that product. Okay. It's just that the product development people are not in-house. Acclaim right. is not interested in developing product at all. They want to acquire product. So they want to be the front house that says, you came up with this game, I and you make it, and you develop it, and you want to bring it to market. Where do people for you to give it to to bring it to market? Exactly. They are going to license content and publish content. That is the point of a claim. And so they set up on the East Coast, Long Island, because that's where they're all kind of from. Mm-hmm. And they start in a strip mall, I think, is where their first office was. They start. It's a very small company to start. I mean, it's basically just the three of them and some support staff. Mm-hmm. And... It's Gregory's job to get that initial product. He was the president of Activision International, so he has lots of contacts in both Europe and Asia with Mm. product development guys. He knows this world. So he hops on a plane to Japan and works his contacts there to go find product because the NES market was a very controlled market. There were tons and tons of games being released by tons and tons of publishers in Japan. But when it came to the United States, if you were a licensee of Nintendo, you could only publish five products a year in the U.S. market. That mm. is all that Nintendo would allow you to publish because they were worried about repeating the oversaturation nightmare that happened in the crash. Mm-hmm. So there were plenty of Famicom games being made in Japan that were not coming to the United States because they didn't have these limits in Japan. If Capcom wanted to publish 15 games in a single year on the Famicom, they could. But they could only bring five of those games over to the United States. And then there were some even smaller developers, 
smaller publishers that didn't even bother setting up a U.S. office. They were too small to make an impact. They didn't want to get involved in that business. So they just they were only in Japan. Mm -hmm. So what Gregory does is he goes over and he starts finding product. And the first couple of things he finds uh, one of them is an, a Taito game called Tiger Heli. It's just a, a standard helicopter shoot 'em up It was an arcade adaptation of a Taito arcade game. But Taito wasn't bringing that product to the U.S. Mm -hmm. So he said, give us that. And then uh, another game he found was a game called uh, Star Voyager, which was essentially an update on the Atari computer game Star Raiders, which had been very popular in the late 1970s, early 1980s. And this was not an Atari product. It's just that this was just a company in Japan updating that Star Raider concept and calling it Star Voyager. And releasing it on the NES. Exactly. And so that's another game he bought. And then another one of their, he also got in with Square early on because Square at this point was still a very small operation and they didn't even have a U.S. operation until the early 90s. Final hmm. Fantasy, which was published in the United States in 1990, was published by Nintendo because Square didn't have a U.S. presence at that time. Hmm. So he also got in with Square and uh, 3D World Runner, which was one of Square's early games, a pre-Final Fantasy game. Right. He got the rights to that game because they weren't coming to the United States. And then on the U.S. side, there there's a company called Epics that was very big in the mid-80s because of their games series. Summer games, winter games, world games, California games. I remember those. Right. And their marketing guy, Bob Botch, who was a very good marketer, another guy I've talked to, he was hot to get into the uh, NES market. He hmm. thought that that was going to be a big market and was gung-ho about getting into there, and so he was getting that rolling. CEO of the company, a fellow named David Morse, absolutely wanted nothing to do with that. He saw no future in that market and didn't want a minute. So they had started getting the ball rolling on getting these products together, and then turns out they're not going to release them. Hmm. So Acclaim Comes swooped in. in and got the rights and released World Games on the NES because even though Epics could have released that themselves, yeah. upper management just didn't want to get involved in that. Now, you said that only one publisher could release five games. It sounds like he's pulling in so many games that he might exceed this five-game limit. Well, I haven't reached five yet. I think I've only talked about four games, right? <laughs> Star, Star Voyager, Tiger, Heli, 3D World Runner, World Games. They probably had a fifth game that came out in 1987. I can't, I'd have to check. But, okay. uh, but no, I mean, we're not exceeding our five game limit. Okay, I'm making sure. He's pulling from a lot of different places, but you, you can develop as many games as you like. Mm -hmm. Anyone can develop, you know, Rare, for instance, who we'll get to in a bit because they got involved with a claim as well. Rare was making a ridiculous number of NES games a year because mm -hmm. you can develop as much as you want. But then you have to find enough publishers to that are willing them. to distribute them so that nobody goes over their five game limit. <laughs> so there's and that's why that's why Acclaim was able to source so much content very quickly. Because everyone had a little extra. Exactly. Especially since you didn't have those restrictions in Japan. So they get a suite of games together and these games do pretty well. I think Tiger Heli sold a million copies or close to it. That's really good. The other games sold in the high hundred thousands mm -hmm. and they're off and running. They are the very first American publisher on the NES. None of the other American companies wanted to get involved for one of two reasons or both. One was the crash. Mm -hmm. Sierra, for instance, almost went out of business in the last video game crash. 
Sierra resisted getting into the console market much, much longer than anyone else, even after the NES proved itself to be a viable system. And even after Sega came along, Sierra stayed out because they nearly went bankrupt in the last crash. Mm -hmm. They were scared. Activision, of course, was a little scared. Other companies were scared. The other thing was the control. You had this Nintendo manufactures all the cartridges and you have to buy the cartridges from them. Nintendo decides what kind of content can be in your games. Mm -hmm. Nintendo has a lot of control over everything. They have control over how much space you get in the magazine. They have control over this. They have control over that. You can only publish five games a year. Those games have to be exclusive to the NES for two years. They got a stranglehold on the market and on the system. And these publishers in the computer game industry who are used to doing whatever they want when they want because computer platforms are a very open platform with low barriers to entry, they didn't like this control thing at all. Mm -hmm. Not one bit. Trip Hawkins Electronic Arts, no way he was going to give up that kind of control. Wild Bill Staley, Microprose, no way he wanted to give up that kind of control. Accolade, no. Way too much control. Mm -hmm. So most of the publishers turned them down because of the control thing. Some of them were also worried about the market vanishing again. Mm -hmm. So Nintendo couldn't get any of the established players to get involved. So Acclaim was the very first one. They had a deal. They had a publishing deal on the NES before they even had a name. (laughs) (laughs) They made the deal at the CES where they were first checking everything out and didn't have any product, didn't have a name, didn't have anything yet when they did it. (laughs) They're just saying like, hey, we're a company. We'll sign you up. Uh, Question mark, question mark, name. Would like to publish. Right. And of course, they knew the guys. Right. I mean, they've both been involved in the video game industry, Gregory and Jimmy. So, I mean, they knew the guys. It's not like they were wackos coming out of nowhere. So, (laughs) Arakawa and Lincoln respected their track record and were happy to give them a license because they've been trying to get North American companies to get involved. All they have at this point is American subsidiaries of Japanese companies like Konami and Capcom and Data East and whatnot. Mm -hmm. So, this was a mutually beneficial relationship. And they got those games out. and Those games did pretty well. It's actually interesting. The vast majority of companies in the United States, they're basically, or I should say video game companies in the United States, they were basically financed in either one of two ways. Either they bootstrapped, which means that they just went on a shoestring, you pulled yourself up from your bootstrap, you get an order for this, and then the guarantee on this order gets you this, and the guarantee on this order gets you this, and then once you sell the (laughs) product, you pay everybody back, and then you have your money, and then you invest that either back into the company or invest that into more loans, and you just kind of live by the skin of your teeth (laughs) for as long as you can. Right. Or you get venture funding, Mm -hmm. which is where you go to venture capitalists. A venture capitalist is somebody who invests in ideas. They will go raise money from wealthy people, and then they will be trusted to take that money from those wealthy people and invest it in companies that are going to be a give a return on investment with the ultimate goal of going public. Mm-hmm. Basically, if you're an venture capitalist, I don't know what the exact statistics are, so I'm making the numbers up. But let's say only one out of five companies that the venture capitalist invests in actually makes it. Mm-hmm. The idea is that company that makes it then goes public. You get a lot of money by cashing out the stock, mm-hmm. and that company pays back for all the failures. So you mm-hmm. make so much money on your successes that, that it makes it worthwhile to spread out the failures. Exactly. And so that's essentially what a venture capitalist does over the simplified. That's kind of the major way that you get funding. Acclaim didn't go that route. Acclaim went the route of something called factoring, hmm. which was a very well-known thing in the retail business, in the traditional retail business. 
where, of course, Jimmy Skoroposky came from, right? but is not something that was really well known in the consumer electronics business. And basically what happens in factoring, and I'm sure I'll get this partially incorrect because, again, I'm not a business person, but what basically happens in factoring is you find somebody whom will take your accounts receivable at a discount. So what mm. you do is you get orders, you get accounts receivable because people are going to owe you money for product. Right. Then you take those accounts receivable and you take them to a third party who will give you money up front for those receivables. They mm. essentially take over the debt and give you money in return, but they give you less money than the receivables are worth. So it's almost like uh, debt collection before debt collection. You... <laughs> Go, hey, I have this debt that I have. Would you like to buy this? And Well, no, it's not a debt. It's an asset. An asset. Someone owes you money. Someone owes you money. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to go, someone owes me money. Would you like to buy this person owing money so that I can have money now? And it goes, yes, friend. I will give you 90 cents on the dollar. Exactly. You sell them to them at a discount. And so then when those receivables come in, the third party collects on the receivables and he makes a profit mm -hmm. because he bought your receivables from you at a discount. Right. He and got 90 cents on the dollar when he bought it off you, but he gets 100% when it comes in. But you get money now as opposed to having to wait for the money to come in. Mm -hmm. I'm not certain that there has ever been another video game publisher financed through Factory. Really? It's possible, uh, maybe. Well, you have to understand, by the time the the video game industry was getting very big, venture capital was already a well-established thing in Silicon Valley. Mm -hmm. And, of course, Silicon Valley is the heart of the tech industry. And because it's the heart of the tech industry, it's also the heart of the VC industry. Okay. So by this point, companies are already very familiar with the way it goes. You come up with a great idea. You make the rounds of the venture companies. Mm -hmm. You find one or two that will invest in your company. and then they give you the money you need, and then you go public, and, and everyone gets paid. So, I mean, it's just, it's already established practice. Right. Nobody ever factored because when the video game industry was new, nobody knew what the value of those receivables were going to be. Mm -hmm. You couldn't factor Atari, even if they had known about it or even wanted to, Atari couldn't factor for their product. Because, well, first of all, they started in the arcade industry. So right. they didn't have a consumer product. There was nothing to factor. Right. They, and, they were going to the consumer and having them buy it. They were... But even if, for the sake of argument, they had started in the consumer business, nobody understood what the value of this stuff was. You're not going to be able to convince a guy that, yeah, I've got these orders for this thing called a video game. And, and yeah, 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 I'm going to get paid. And, and then you're going to get paid. It's like, right. Yeah, I'm going to charge them. Video game. 20 bucks. And... You just need to give me 19 bucks, and eventually they'll give you 20 bucks. Honest. For video games. So factoring, quite simply, just wasn't an option for the early companies. And then by the time the video game industry was established, the method of financing a video game company was established. It was understood that you finance through venture capital. Okay. So it's kind of that ecosystem already existed. But Jimmy Skorposky was coming out of a different background. There are a lot of people, there have been a lot of buyers mm -hmm. at department stores and whatnot that have then gone into the retail side of the video game industry. Al Nilsson, who was the marketing director for Genesis at Sega, is a very prominent example. He was an assistant buyer at Pennies. Dick Lehrberg, who was an executive vice president of Interplay for years and years, got his start as a buyer for Sears, mm -hmm. buying video games. That's not unusual, but 
I don't think there's ever been another buyer on the retail side that has actually founded a major video game company. Huh. So Jimmy Skoroposky is bringing a different experience to founding a video game company because he had been a buyer. He had been very involved in retail. He understood how retail worked in and out. Mm -hmm. So this is kind of the world that he's familiar with. Plus, they're on the East Coast, all the VCs on the West Coast. Yeah, so long I mean, trip. There, there are venture funds in New York City. I mean, New York yeah. City is uh, such a financial center. But still, the tech industry is centered in Silicon Valley, and the tech VCs are centered in Silicon Valley. Mm -hmm. So there really isn't that same VC infrastructure on the East Coast where they are in Oyster Bay, New York. So they sort of have a unique, perfect storm that doing factoring really makes sense to be done because of where they are. They're away from where the heart of the technology is, and it makes sense, and that's why factoring worked. Exactly. And But I... I bet, I mean, I can't say this 100% certainty, but I bet they are the only video game publisher that ever financed themselves via factoring. <laughs> At least you haven't found one yet. Exactly. So that's how they get going, and they've got some games, and they do well uh, with this first round of product. So where do you go from there? Well, you grow the company, you grow the product, and basically, you know, Gregory Fishback's making rounds with the people he knows in the retail industry, and it's like, well, you know, it's great that you've had these games, but... You know, Star Voyager? What's that? 3D World Runner? What is that? Hmm. I mean, give me something I can sell. Give me something with a name on it. Something that the public knows. Exactly. And so very, very quickly, they transition from just pulling original product out of Asia or out of other companies, mm -hmm. and they turn to the licensing business. That's where they start doing cross-in with movies and... Exactly. And they pioneer a form of video game deal that is called a, it was called a reverse Knight Rider deal. And the, the reason mm. it was called that specifically is because Knight Rider, <laughs> the property Knight Rider is one of the first games this was done with. Basically what you do is you acquire a license. Mm -hmm. Then you sub-license a company someplace else, usually a Japanese company at this point. You sub-license a Japanese company for cheap. That Japanese company actually creates the game mm -hmm. and then you sell that game in your markets hmm. and so they called that a reverse night rider deal is what they did and so they start is that doing also games. the entire business model for ljn <laughs> well <laughs> yeah i mean kind of but yes this is the same kind of thing that ljn did it's the same kind of thing that Activision started doing when they got involved in the business, and it's the same kind of thing that Ocean Software, which is a British software house, started doing, though Ocean also did a lot of its own internal development with its licenses. It didn't farm out so much, but they would sub-license arcade games, so like they got, and console games, so they got the Robocop license, and so they created a Robocop computer game, 8-bit computer game, 16-bit computer game in-house, and then they sub-licensed it to Japanese companies to do arcade game and to do the Nintendo version. And hmm. in fact, they sub-licensed the arcade game to Data East and then based the computer game that they developed in-house <laughs> on the arcade game that was developed by their sub-licensee. So, I mean, these things can get kind of complicated, <laughs> but that's that's the basic idea of it. Because, of course, still at this point, Acclaim is not having its own internal product development. So they are going out. They're just a publishing house. Exactly. And so this is when they really get involved in the licensing business. And they're doing games like the Knight Rider thing. They're doing Rambo. They're doing a lot of these kind of big licenses. 
And they are also getting involved with Rare, hmm. which at this point is a developer that is starting to get some real cred, but it's not pre-Donkey Kong Country. There aren't a lot of people that really know who Rare are. But Rare is basically off doing their own thing. The Stamper Brothers, who founded Rare, realized very early on that the NES was going to be the next kind of big thing internationally. Mm-hmm. They were a computer game company. Well, they were they owned a computer game company. They had founded Ashby Computer Graphics, and then they had a label called Ultimate Play the Game mm-hmm. that they released their 8-bit computer games on. And they were streets ahead, as the British would say, of the rest of the British software industry. What they could get a ZX Spectrum to do graphically was just astounding compared to what the competition was doing. They had these beautiful games, and they had these very intricate games. They made a lot of arcade adventures, which are basically kind of Zelda before Zelda. In fact, their first one, uh, called Attic Attack, looks a lot like Zelda. I forget which Stamper it was, which Stamper brother, but he would often cheekily say, and uh, here's Legend of Zelda, a Nintendo's ripoff of Attic Attack. (laughs) And I honestly have no idea if Nintendo really saw Attic Attack or not, because it's not like they had a big European presence. It's actually kind of interesting which way that they can could do that because you can see that again with Donkey Kong Country, the fact that the graphics there just seem so out of place for something that a the Super Nintendo could do. It's like something you would expect from a generation ahead as far as how it looks, how the sound was, how the pre-rendered palm leaf look. If you pull up a picture of the... Well, I'll try to put this in the show notes. Find a uh, video or a couple pictures of just showing just how beautiful Donkey Kong Country look. And then you try to compare that to even the late games that came out on the Super Nintendo. The only thing that, in my mind, that can even come close to it, it may be Secret of Evermore. Yeah, no, they were they were miles ahead. They've always been known for being technically... Well, they were always known for being technically so far ahead of everybody else. Uh, Rare today is, is a little different beast than rare back then mm-hmm. but absolutely and they were doing very well on the british 8-bit platforms and then kind of the the british market came to a to a tipping point in the late 80s because there was a transition going on in the late 80s mm-hmm. to the 16-bit computer platforms which in this case meant the atari st and the amiga ibm pc not a factor in this market here from an entertainment perspective mm-hmm. Atari ST and the Amiga never did anything in the United States, but both actually did very well in Europe, relatively speaking. Very Mm -hmm. well in Europe doesn't mean selling millions upon millions, but it means not being utter failures, which they largely were in the United States. So you could either get on those 16-bit platforms, which was where the British computer game market was going, Mm-hmm. which was a smaller market because since there wasn't really that much ST or Amiga penetration in the United States, that was not going to translate into sales in the much larger United States market. So you could either stay the computer course, move up to the 16-bit machines, and have a nice, modest business in Europe. Mm-hmm. Or you could stick with the 8-bit and get on console, which was not at this time penetrating Britain or Europe. Very small console markets there. So you wouldn't be selling to your domestic market, but you could theoretically make a boatload of money in the United States because that's a big market. Hmm. And so the British publishers, or the British developers, I should say, they didn't quite split down the middle, but some of them chose the one path and some of them chose the other path. And the Stampers were one of those that chose the 8-bit NES path. 
And so they sold the Ultimate Play the Game label to a competitor, and they established Rare. Mm. And then they established a partnership in the United States with a guy named Joel Huckberg, who became the head of Rare Coinit, which was kind of a, an affiliated U.S. company that kind of kept them up to speed on what was going on in the U.S. Mm. And so they decide to do this Famicom thing. And Nintendo didn't make it easier to become easy to become a developer on the NES. Really? Become a publisher, sure. But they wanted to make sure the developer could really handle it. So they wouldn't give developers technical information on the Famicom. Really? Oftentimes, until they prove themselves. How do you prove yourself if you don't know how to program on the device you're trying to program on? You reverse engineer the, pro the product you're trying to program on and then create your own dev kits based on the understanding you've just given yourself about the hardware. I see... And so that's what the Stampers did. They reverse engineered the Famicom. And so they really understood how that thing worked. They understood it better than Nintendo did. They discovered that you could do split screen on the Famicom. Hmm. Nobody knew you could do it. <laughs> it wasn't intended for that. But they've discovered that, hey, if I do this and this, split screen. So Nintendo was very impressed. And Nintendo said, great. Make all the games you want, and uh, we'll publish some, and we'll help you find other companies that will help you publish other things. And hmm. so Acclaim's relationship with Rare started because Nintendo gave him a call and said, you know, there's these great guys out in England, and you should really check them out. Hmm. And they're like, oh, okay, we'll do that. <laughs> so they did, and uh, they published Wizards and Warriors, which was one of the first Nintendo games that Rare brought to the United States. I remember that one. Mm-hmm. And then they also did a lot of development together after that, though, on licensed properties. They didn't publish original content from Rare, but Rare helped them do some of their licenses. So that was an important in for them. Mm -hmm. And they had all this Japanese stuff going on, and they were getting all this licensing going, and then also licensing hot arcade properties. Because the other thing is, the other thing that people already know are hot arcade properties. At this point, the arcade is not the same arcade it was in the early 80s when it was just huge. It was one of the largest entertainment diversions in America, $8 billion a year industry. At this point, the arcade industry has actually recovered to almost $8 billion again. Hmm. But it's two things here. First of all, it's $8 billion in $1988, not $8 billion in $1982. Inflation. Yeah, a little bit of inflation. And the other thing is that it's a much more mixed market. So when the golden age of arcade games, arcade video games happened, like 90% of that $8 billion was video games. Now it's a little more diversified. Now it's 50-50 split between video games and pinball with redemption kind of coming in. We talked about this a little bit in our arcade episode. Right. So it's not quite as big a deal, but still, these are very recognizable properties. And so they went out and aggressively licensed. Again, you've got Gregory Fishback's contacts really helping out here because he already knows these people in the Far East. And so they get Double Dragon 2, Hmm. which was very important for them. But and not Double Dragon 1. No, Double Dragon 1, the, the original Double Dragon had been published in the United States by a company called Trade West. Mm -hmm. And Trade West thought sure that they had the sequel locked up. I'm not sure if it's because they, they thought the original contract gave them the right to also port the sequel or if they thought they had a deal on the sequel at a later date, but they thought sure they had the rights to the sequel. So when Acclaim swooped in and got those rights, they actually sued Acclaim. Oh, wow. <laughs> because, well, I can't remember. They might have sued Acclaim. They, they probably sued Technos. Whoever, whoever Technos owned Japan, the original. Who owned the rights. Yeah, I think they sued Technos, not Acclaim. 
they sued Technos because they thought those rights were theirs and they lost that suit. So they, that was really a steal <laughs> in a yeah. way for a claim to get those rights. Yeah, especially to get Double Dragon 2, which is probably the best Double Dragon game on the Nintendo. Easily it was. The first Double Dragon was just a butchered port because at the time people didn't fully understand how to harness the power of the NES so they couldn't port it very faithfully. Mm-hmm. And then Double Dragon 3 was this weird console-only nonsense thing. I don't know. It was just a bad game. <laughs> so mm-hmm. Double Dragon 1 was a bad port. Double Dragon 3 was a bad game. Double Dragon 2 was a great port of a great game. Mm-hmm. It's like the one time they got it right. And it was done by acclaim. And it was published by acclaim. Exactly. Published and brought to market by acclaim. Exactly. Brought to market. They didn't, of course, build it because they didn't build games then, but it was published by acclaim. So this was a big deal for them. They have a very good time with that. And they also go public in 1988. They do it, they merge, they do a reverse merger deal with kind of an investment company. It was a company called Gamma that basically had gotten a bunch of money together specifically to go public with kind of a recognized brand. So they kind of reverse merged into Gamma Mm -hmm. and went public that way and created this public company. So now Acclaim Entertainment's gone public. They're flush with cash. Mm. They've had several big hits. They're making great relationships all around. So they don't want to just publish five games a year anymore. They want to publish more than five. They are one of the biggest publishers on the NES by this point. I think Konami is number one. Mm -hmm. And Capcom and Acclaim are kind of duking it out for number two. I'm not sure at this point which one is actually number two and which one's number three. But they're like the number two or number three biggest publisher on the NES in the United States. And they're certainly the largest publisher that is an American company. Mm-hmm. You know, the other ones are Japanese companies because they got in on the ground floor. There are a couple other companies like Activision and Trade West, who we just mentioned, that are now starting to get into the NES publishing business. Mm-hmm. But Acclaim's got the head start, so they're much more established. Yep, and they already got the relationships. So now the next step to growing is publishing more games. Mm-hmm. And so... Nintendo, they're very close to Nintendo at this point. These guys are great at building relationships, Mm -hmm. especially Gregory Fishback and Robert Holmes, you know, very great at building relationships. So they're in well with the Nintendo people. They're like, look, guys, we're making you lots of money. We're making lots of money. Everybody's making money. Let us let us do something here. Like, we need well, to get a past this five yeah. games. And they're like, no, no special favors. We don't do special favors for anyone. And they really didn't. Lots of companies over the years came asking them for special favors. Mm-hmm. And they wouldn't budge on the terms. But they said, hmm. there are other companies out there, smaller companies than you, that have licenses. Hmm. And so if you were to acquire a company mm-hmm. that already has a license on the NES... Mm-hmm. We're not going to pull that license. Mm. So maybe you can think about doing that. So pretty much acquire someone who already has a license, and then instead of five, you get ten. Buy another one, you right. get fifteen. And at this time, there's a toy company out there that's not doing very well. Mm-hmm. And that toy company's name is LJN. Ah. Whom I believe you brought up previously. I did bring up LJN previously. LJN was founded by a guy named Jack Friedman in 1970. He had come out of the toy industry. I mean, he was already involved in the toy industry is what I mean by that. And he was a master of licensing. That was kind of his big deal. He knew how to license. And he made it really big in 1982 when he got a bunch of licenses for a little film called E.T. Hmm. May have heard of that one. May have heard of that one. 
And so that came out very well for him. And then he actually sold the company then to MCA, the Merchandising Corporation of America, in 1985. MCA hmm. had also bought Universal. So MCA Universal was the company that had the rights to E.T. So they knew each other, you know, kind of through the E.T. deal. And right. they were looking for basically... MCA Universal decided that rather than licensing other companies to make their toys for them and letting them have the cut of the profits, mm -hmm. they'd bring their own toy company in-house. And so then they'd have a company that, that, they, could do that, that they could do it themselves. So they had bought it in 1985. Jack Friedman was still there, but they had bought it. And they got involved in the NES market because they're a master licensing company. And like you said, they're starting to do the same kind of thing. They're mm -hmm. picking up a few little licenses. You know, they're, they're in the licensing business and making licensed toys. They had a disaster with a product called the Gotcha Gun. It was a gun that essentially shot paint. Oh, so it was a paintball gun. Yeah, but not in the sense of pellets like that. That would be a little too dangerous to be a toy. Hmm. <laughs> talking a toy here. We're not talking about. Right. Uh, but even the Gotcha Gun, it was still a messy thing. It's still not a good idea for a toy. Yeah. I don't know how that got through. So that was bad, and some of their other stuff wasn't doing so well. So LJN was in really bad shape, and MCA was looking to unload it, and they had a license. Mm -hmm. So Acclaim bought LJN. Hmm. And so that way they were able to release 10 games a year, five games as Acclaim and five games as LJN. So they kept the LJN label. Right, because they had to for the licensing reason. Exactly. So that's why. So they put all the ones they all the ports they weren't sure of, and they threw that all at LJN. <laughs> exactly. It turns <laughs> out that LJN got a lot of the bad ports, <laughs> but it they made money. Mm. <laughs> low cost stuff, you know, low cost stuff and name recognition. So yep. they they sell, you know, not the greatest games, but they make money, and they get some high quality licenses through that. They get the Simpsons through that, <laughs> mm. so that worked out well. And now they're releasing 10 games a year. And so now they're becoming huge. Konami did something similar. Konami didn't buy another company, mm -hmm. but Konami also, they're the number one publishers, we said. They're also like, we got to do something here. And they were refusing to budge. And so Emil Heidkamp, who was the vice president of consumer for Konami of America, he was running the consumer stuff in the United States. Right. You know, he says to Howard Lincoln, it's like, well, what if we found a separate subsidiary and, and ask for a license for them? And Howard Lincoln's like, well, I don't know. Maybe you should try doing that and see what happens. Nudge, nudge, wink, wink. And so that's why you may remember that certain games like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles that were Konami games came out under the name Ultra Games. Yep. And that. so it wasn't a purchase in this case like LJN was. In this case, Konami just founded a new subsidiary called Ultra Games. And it's like their entrance was around the corner. It's like... <laughs> you know, the Konami address, they're in the same building, but like the Konami address is here. And then you go around the corner and there's the Ultra address. And Emil Konami, Sweet A, Ultra, Sweet B. And Emil Heidkamp, who's VP of Consumer for Konami of America, is president of Ultra Games. Hmm. And there's, they're not fooling anybody. Right, but right. the point is that they got On to paper. do 10 games a year as well, just in the same way that Acclaim got to do 10 games a year. And so this allows a claim. I mean, they're becoming huge by this point. I don't think they ever passed Konami on the NES, mm -hmm. but they were definitely at least the number two. And they were very close to number one. They're making hundreds of millions of dollars at this point. That kind of thing's going great. And they also, at this point, kind of get their own internal technological team going. They're not developing yet. Okay. But they got a guy in the LJN deal. They got a guy named Wes Trogger. Mm -hmm. And Wes, another guy I've interviewed, 
he had cut his teeth on the VCS back in the day. Mm -hmm. And he had made games for a company called James Wickstead Design, which was a design company. They would build products of all sorts for lots of different clients. So they were working with toy companies. They were working with technology companies. They were working with everything. And one of the things they did is they started building games for other companies. James Wickstead didn't publish any of the games. They would design the games and then give them along. They worked with Parker Brothers. Mm -hmm. They worked with the games division of Quaker Oats. They were working with a bunch of companies that were getting into that boom. So he had cut his teeth on that. He had had some video game industry experience then. Uh, once that market crashed, he was working on other stuff like medical technology stuff for James Wickstead Design. Hmm. And then he had gone on to LJN. He was kind of coordinating LJN's development efforts. Again, LJN wasn't doing stuff in-house, but Wes Trogger was kind of the guy that was working with the developers around the world and making sure that the games were on track and that mm -hmm. they were up to spec and all of that. So now they had their own technology guy in-house, which was nice, too. They decided to keep him on. And this was kind of the first phase towards starting to get something a little more internal going on a technology front. Mm-hmm. Another thing that happened around this time is, at this point, Nintendo's under some pressure because of their perceived monopolistic practices. Mm -hmm. The They're actually being investigated by attorneys general. They are under investigation by the FTC, the Federal Trade Commission, to see if their practices are monopolistic. Mm -hmm. And so they they feel like they have to back off a little bit on some of their policies, relax some of their policies a little bit. Okay. And one thing they decide to do is let certain trusted third-party publishers do their own manufacturing. Really? Mm-hmm. So to act, they're finally relinquishing the whole cartridge thing. Not the whole cartridge thing, but yeah, certain but trusted, certain very trusted close people are allowed, people to, are allowed to do their own cartridges. And Acclaim is one of the companies granted this permission to do their own cartridges. So that was kind of the first big thing that Wes Trogger did when he got to Acclaim was figuring this whole thing out. Hmm. And they went to Tektronic, the keyboard company, hmm. in order to facilitate this. Because keyboard companies know how to create housings for hmm. electronics really cheaply because they're making keyboards. Right. So they, he goes to them and he kind of he gets housings really cheap from the keyboard company. And then he helps set up the whole manufacturing operation. And so now Acclaim's manufacturing their own cartridges. So they're hmm. getting bigger and bigger and taking on more and more responsibility. Is there something on the cartridges that would it really tell the difference between a Nintendo-made cartridge and a claim-made cartridges? That's a good question. I don't know. Hmm. That's a question for collectors. <laughs> okay, collectors, if you know, let us know. I know that when Electronic Arts was doing their own manufacturing on the Genesis, uh, that their cartridges were definitely different. Mm -hmm. I don't know if there's anything different about some of these companies. I mean... If there is, it's very subtle, because certainly I have games in my collection from many of these different companies, and they all look the same to me uh, right. as a guy who's not looking for differences. I'm not a collector. Right. As a guy who's not looking for differences, they all look the same to me, but <laughs> it's very probable that there's... Yeah, we should probably take a look afterwards. <laughs> Absolutely. So they're taking on more and more, and they're also starting to kind of cozy up to Sega a little bit, because Sega's got their 16-bit system coming out. Mm -hmm. And they can't completely break ranks with Nintendo at this point because there's always that fear of retribution. And I will say this. I have not seen any evidence from anyone that I've talked to. I've talked to people at Activision. I've talked to people at Acclaim. I've talked to people at Konami. I've talked to people at Capcom. Mm -hmm. 
I have never seen any evidence or heard of any evidence that Nintendo actually retaliated against any publisher that decided to start doing some stuff with Sega. Mm -hmm. Activision, for instance, was starting to do some stuff on the Master System in the later days of the NES. Mm -hmm. And Bruce Davis said to me that, no, he remained very close to Howard Lincoln at Nintendo, and they never retaliated against us in any way, shape, or form. Obviously, they're not violating their deals. Right. They're they're still, they're doing other product. They're not breaking their two-year exclusivity deals. Right. All the legal stuff, that's all fine. It's just not, there's nothing coming up that's sort of, hey, I see you're being unfaithful to me by going over to that Sega person. I'm going to shun you a little bit. Exactly. There's there's never any indication that they actually did that. You know, there's there's these rumors going around that they may have played hardball with retailers from time to time, but there's no evidence that they were doing it with publishers. Mm -hmm. And Acclaim was starting to get involved a little bit. They created a separate label to put some stuff out on on the Sega systems. They cross-licensed in Japan, so their deal with Nintendo was for the United States. Mm-hmm. And they had some of these licenses. They had, like, the wrestling license uh, was one of the licenses, again, that I'm pretty sure they got from LJN, you know, wrestling, uh, WWF license. They have mm-hmm. licenses like that, and they would sub-license some of that to Sega for the Japanese market because mm-hmm. their deal was for the U.S. only. So if some of their stuff came out on Sega systems in Japan, that didn't violate their Good agreement. Deal. So they were starting to cozy up to Sega and to Nakayama-san in Japan a little bit. They weren't completely breaking ranks with Nintendo yet, but they, they want to be involved in every aspect of the market. They're looking for ways to grow, mm-hmm. and they're starting to look for other opportunities. They almost purchased Marvel Comics at one point. Really? Marvel mm-hmm. Comics was so low that they could buy Marvel Comics? Well, <laughs> yes <laughs> and no. were they so rich? Yeah, both. both. This This was not one of Marvel Comics best periods in terms of their valuation and not the best period for the comic book industry in terms of valuation. This is the period when they were really starting to get challenged by some of the indie labels and whatnot. So Mm -hmm. no, this was a point that Marvel was not at its best, but it was also a point where Acclaim was really high up there. I mean, at their peak, we're not quite there yet, but at their peak, they were a $500 million company. Mm -hmm. They were neck and neck with Electronic Arts in terms of revenue. And I'm not sure which one was number one, which one was number two, but they were both roughly $500 million companies mm-hmm. at the same time, at the, at the height. So they're they're big business, and they're a publicly traded companies, so they've got stock. They can raise money on the markets. Yep. They're, uh, they're a big deal at this point. They're huge. And they're making all of these deals, and one of the deals that they make around this period, too, is they get the rights to Williams arcade games. Hmm. Williams was mostly a Chicago company, but the owner of the company, Louis Nicastro, was an East Coast guy. He was a he was a Long Island guy. And so they had an in with Williams through the Nicastro family, which owned the company. Mm-hmm. And at this point, Williams was purely an arcade company. They were both big in pinball and big in uh, video games, but they did not have a home division. Hmm. And as the arcade business at Williams is starting to pick up again, they're starting to have some interesting product. And so they need an outlet to get that product into the home market. And they work their connections with the Nicastro family and they get the right of first refusal on on the Williams arcade games. Hmm. And shortly after they get that deal, Williams, through its Midway label, releases a uh, little arcade game called Mortal Kombat. Oh, no one cared about that game. 
No, not at all. And who has the rights to Mortal Kombat in the home? Hmm. Well, that would be Acclaim Entertainment. Yep. So by this time, they have decided to formally break their deal with Nintendo. Really? Right. They're saying, we're not going to be bound by this anymore. We are going to publish our games on both systems. We're not going to keep it exclusive to you. Hmm. And by this point, there's really nothing Nintendo can say. We're talking 1992 now. Okay. So now we're at the tail end of Nintendo, uh, the NES. And yeah, the NES Super is, Nintendo is. Yeah, NES is dead. Super Nintendo is doing fine. But by this point, Sega is a very valid competitor. Mm-hmm. This is at near the height of Sega. Yes, exactly. So at this point, there's nothing that Nintendo can really say. I mean, first of all, they've just avoided being called a monopoly. They managed to beat a court case and beat an FTC investigation. And so they narrowly avoided being labeled a monopoly. Mm -hmm. And so this is not a good time to be throwing their weight around. Right. And the other thing is that at this point, the Sega Genesis is doing well enough the market share is more becoming kind of a 50-50 split mm-hmm. rather than the 90-10 or 95-5 split it used to be. So there's a very real chance that if they hold a publisher to these exclusivity deals, that publisher is going to call their bluff and say, well, I'm just going to go put this on Sega. And then Sega essentially has the game exclusively because mm-hmm. they've alienated So at this point, Nintendo realizes that they can't really hold their third-party companies to exclusivity deals anymore. So that's why when Mortal Kombat came out on the Super Nintendo, it came out on all the major systems at the time. It went out on the Genesis. And, and you know, it took a company like Acclaim to do that. Because, I mean, Nintendo's not going to be the first one to blink. Nintendo's not going to be the one that suddenly says, Good news, everybody. Your games don't have to be exclusive to us anymore. Mm Mm-hmm. They're not going to do that. And, you know, a smaller company, they might have been able to intimidate into remaining exclusive. Mm -hmm. But if somebody like Acclaim comes to you and says, we're not going to be exclusive anymore. There's not much they can really do because that's one of their major publishers. Exactly. So they let Acclaim off the leash. And once Acclaim's off the leash, of course, then everybody's off the leash. That's the end of exclusivity in Nintendo consoles. Mm -hmm. Which was in the Super Nintendo era. Exactly. So at this point, they've got Mortal Kombat and they know this is going to be huge Mm -hmm. because it's been huge in the arcade. They know this is going to be huge. And so they want to do something that has never, ever been done before. They are going to release a game Mm -hmm. on an exact date on all platforms, Hmm. not just Super Nintendo and Genesis, but also handheld. Really? simultaneously. What would the handheld that would get Mortal Kombat? Game Boy. Game Boy. It wasn't a good port, but that wasn't the point. (laughs) I mean, it's worthless on the Game Boy, but (laughs) there's money to be made there, and it doesn't cost much to develop it on it. True enough. So why not? They're going to release on everything simultaneously on Mortal Monday. Mortal Monday. Mm Mm-hmm. Now, you see, at this time, there was no such thing as a street date. The logistics of manufacturing and distribution were so tricky that you didn't get it to everybody. Everybody didn't get their product at the same time. You'd service your major accounts first, then would trickle out to other accounts. Mm -hmm. You wouldn't necessarily get it all over the country, let alone all over the world at the same time, because shipping is weird and expensive. And 
at this point, inventory tracking isn't quite as sophisticated yet as computer inventory tracking gets more and more sophisticated. This kind of There's thing no becomes UPS less of an tracking issue. Number. Yeah, exactly. So this is not this is very tricky. So there were no there was no such thing as a street date for a video game. There would be a target release window, usually somewhere around the you know, kind of a week that you were trying to launch on mm-hmm. and some places would get it before other places and some parts of the world would get it before other parts of the world. And, you know, it's all very ad hoc. Sega was the first company to actually have a street day for a game. Mm-hmm. They did it in November 1992 with Sonic Tuesday for Sonic the Hedgehog 2. So mm. it was it was not the word Tuesday spelled out. It was Sonic Two, the number two, S D A Y, Sonic Tuesday. Hmm. They were the first one to do that, to actually have a set street date all around the world. Japan decided to be difficult and not hold to that worldwide date, but everywhere else in the world got it at the same time. Mm-hmm. They were the first to do it, but of course, that was only on Sega console. That was only on the Sega Genesis because Which it's is Sega doing easier it. Easier to do, right? They are going to develop. Four different versions of the game, because I believe it was on Game Gear as well. Oh, really? They were going to develop four different versions of the game with completely different code bases. They are then going to release all four of those games on the exact same day simultaneously everywhere Mm -hmm. on Mortal Monday. Oh, my. This is a huge, huge undertaking. But it's, it's a great marketing thing. I mean, Robert Holmes was a great marketer. Jimmy Skoroposky was a great sales guy, and Gregor Fishbach was a great licensing relationship guy. I mean, this was an A team mm-hmm. right here. People bringing their A game to everything, and, and yeah, and this people is people who really understand what they're doing. Exactly, and this is an A team at the height of their power, with lots of money, lots of prestige, lots of influence, and now they have through their through great fortune. Because when they made the deal with uh, Williams, they didn't know the Mortal Kombat was coming. Through their great fortune, they have what is going to be one of the hottest games of the year. Mm-hmm. And this is what they do. They're they're releasing it all these places simultaneously on Mortal Monday, and they do this very memorable ad campaign. I don't know if you remember. It's the kid kind of in the middle of this empty street, and he just yells, Mortal Kombat! Remember that ad campaign? Was, I'm not sure if I do It was all over not. the televisions when we were kids. It really was. Okay, well, I'll try to look that up yeah. for the show notes. Huge ad campaign. It was backed with... Boku advertising dollars, and this was going to be the biggest release of the year. Mortal Kombat, it sold like an excess of 5 million copies across all platforms, which was huge. And Nintendo (laughs) had its content policies. It did have its content policies. Beautiful, beautiful content policies. Mortal Kombat, as I'm sure all our listeners know, is a wee bit graphic. And by graphic, we mean gore. Lots and lots of gore. There's blood flying everywhere, and then there's fatalities. There's ripping out hearts. There's ripping off heads. There's all sorts of crazy fatalities. And the graphics are digitized graphics, so they're real people that have been then rendered in in pixelated form. So Mm -hmm. they look much more realistic. Street Fighter II, of course, didn't have that level of violence, but fatalities in Street Fighter II, if it had had fatalities, wouldn't have been quite as big a deal because the fighters were very cartoony. Mm-hmm. And these who cared if we kill cartoons? These fighters looked real for the time. Today they don't look real, but they looked real. So I mean, this it was, was so such a big deal, the violence and gore with that game, that it brought the U.S. Congress in on it. It really did. 
And so Nintendo wasn't going to stand for that. And so two things had to happen. First, the blood had to be a different color. Mm -hmm. It was turned gray, and they called it sweat. (laughs) Second, no way we can have these fatalities. No way. That goes against everything we stand for as a company, says Nintendo. Mm -hmm. Gregory Fishback's like, you know the Sega version is going to have this stuff, right? Yeah. And you know that if the Sega version has this stuff... And Nintendo doesn't. They're going to sell way more than you do, right? Because, you know, they don't have a horse in this race. They want to sell as much as they can on every system. Right. So it's in their best interest to make sure that every system has a good version of the game. Because they want to make sure that Super Nintendo owners are buying it, too. Mm -hmm. And Nintendo's like, be that as it may, we can't budge on this. This is our policy. And Sega wrestled with it, too. Tom Kalinske really wrestled with this. They were a little uncomfortable as well, but you see, they came up with the idea, we'll put the fatalities in through a cheat code. Hmm. And so we can tell people we're selling it in a clean version, and people can only get access to the gore if they have this cheat code. And of course, they widely publicized the cheat code. It wasn't an Easter egg. Right. They wanted people to unlock and know how to unlock all of the, the gore. Right. But this was their way of kind of meeting halfway, because a lot of people assume that Sega didn't have content standards, mm-hmm. that Nintendo had strict content standards and Sega just let anyone do anything. That's not actually true. Sega actually had content standards. I've talked mm-hmm. to their third-party relations people. They were far, far more lenient than Nintendo's. Mm-hmm. They never exercised the kind of control that Nintendo did. But they weren't going to allow anything like truly R-rated or truly hardcore on their system. They had content standards. They weren't going to have n- true nudity or all sorts of profanity or really, really excessive stuff on their systems. So, I mean, they did care a little bit about content, too. Mm-hmm. And so this was their compromise. That way you can sort of say that, yeah, the parents know how to unlock the console for them playing it, but not little Johnny. Exactly. But, of course, they know little Johnny's going to unlock it, too. And at the end of the day, they're okay with that. Mm-hmm. But it's kind of a way of covering themselves. Yep. So Mortal Kombat's huge. It it sells in excess of 5 million copies across all platforms. It's like, it's 3 to 1 or something like that. I believe that's the figure I've heard. 3 to 1. Wow. Sega versus Nintendo. And this, this is really the tipping point in the contest. It's like, they're mostly even up till that point, And there's, they're so close that there's a lot of dispute. It's like, Sega will say they have a slight lead. Nintendo will say that they're fudging their numbers and they're lying. Not lying. I I don't want to put it that way, but it's like sell in and sell through. It's like Sega would often report the number of consoles they would ship to retailers. Mm. Nintendo would usually report the number of consoles that actually made it into the hands of consumers. Okay. And so there would be argument over numbers. It's like Sega is, is reporting a true number, but it's a number that paints them in a more positive light than is the actual reality. And mm. we're actually doing better than them on this and that. And there's there's a lot of back and it forth. It all depends on what numbers you're looking at. And, and the Nintendo people were really kind of upset because they felt that Sega was, was being very disingenuous with the numbers. Nintendo felt that they were an honest company, that they were upfront about what they were doing. They felt that if they were reporting a number, it was a really a solid number. And if they felt mm-hmm. that if they had a policy, they were very upfront about that policy. They they were not a company that they felt engaged in subterfuge. And they avoided doing the kind of bashing of Sega mm-hmm. that Sega did of Nintendo. A little later on, they got into a little bit of that. But I'm talking about in this period here. Right. They felt that they were a very forthright company. And I think people at Nintendo, I haven't talked to many people from Nintendo yet, but the people I have talked to... Uh, I think the Nintendo people at Nintendo felt like Sega was 
was not always being fair <laughs> mm-hmm. in the way they did things. And so Nintendo was kind of nonplussed by that. But the point being, it was a very close fight until 1993. Mm-hmm. 1993 was the year that it went much closer to a like 55-45 split. It was still close. Right. But this but... was the year that Sega could really legitimately claim victory over Nintendo. We have a bigger market share than Nintendo. We and have dethroned the king. Exactly. And there was no way to spin that. There was no way to say they're using strange numbers, they're using this, they're using that. And Mortal Kombat was a huge part of that because that was the game everyone wanted that year. And, and keep in mind that later on, Nintendo had, because of this, I would imagine, Mortal Kombat 2, when it came out on Nintendo, there was blood, there was fatalities. So by then... This this gets slightly off track, but by then the congressional hearings had happened, uh-huh. and the rating system was in place, and Nintendo felt that gave them enough cover. Okay. I think Nintendo was still a little bit uncomfortable with that kind of thing, but they felt that the rating system covered them. So that they could say, we can slap this label on it, people will buy it, but we're still a family company because exactly. we have the labels. Exactly. So, you know, so yes, by then <laughs> they realized they had to sell it with everything included, Mm-hmm. And they felt that they had the cover they needed to sell it with everything included. And so, of course, with Mortal Kombat 2, it had all of that stuff in it. So Mortal Kombat makes Sega King of the Hill mm-hmm. for a very brief moment. Mortal Kombat makes acclaimed King of the Hill, especially since the follow-up to that was after Mortal Kombat. Williams went back and had a, a little game called NBA Jam come out in the arcade. And that one was pretty popular. And that was huge. And so then, because they have the right of first refusal to all of the Williams games, Acclaim got NBA Jam. Hmm. NBA Jam wasn't quite as big as Mortal Kombat, but following on the heels of Mortal Kombat, they had two huge games. I think we actually played NBA Jam uh, on the Super Nintendo. A lot. We, we, and and it was like pretty much the only sports game Alex and I have played in, played with our friends. And we actually had the little four, person super nintendo unit and Mm -hmm. all four of us would play nba jam and that was the thing to play for like what three four years oh exactly i mean i've always liked sports games and i've played a lot of sports games because well mostly baseball games because i'm really into baseball none of my friends including jeff were really into any of the sports and so i was playing the baseball games but nobody else was playing baseball games and none, none of us were playing sports games none of us were playing madden or nhl hockey or whatever but Boy, did we play NBA Jam because it was just, it was so fun because yeah. it was just so outside of, it wasn't so much about the the sport almost. Right. It was just a game that you could play with friends and it's like, yeah, we're trying to get to play, get baskets and stuff, but it has all these special effects and playing around and it's easy to just jump in. You don't really have to understand how the game is, you don't have to understand how the sport is played to play the game. You can just be, hey. I'm here. I got the ball. All right. From downtown, we're shooting this. Boom shakalaka. (laughs) Yeah. Exactly. And that was that was the secret to the appeal of NBA Jam is it pulled in a lot of non-sports fans. And so you've got two of the biggest games of 93, 94 at a claim. Mm -hmm. And so this is a claim at the top of its powers becomes a five hundred million dollar company. It becomes either number one or number two in the whole business. You know, they're fighting toe to toe with electronic arts. Right. Based on based on who's number one in the industry. They're on all platforms now. They're doing well on all platforms. They've made 
deals. We haven't gotten into that too much, but they're working with some of the top independent developers throughout the United States and Europe, Sculptured Software down in Utah, which uh, is considered kind of the king of the console developers in the United States. They're working with they're working with Iguana down in Texas, I think they are, which uh, did NBA Jam and who are just at the top of their game. They're working with Probe Software in the United Kingdom, which was one of, which was the top independent developer in the UK. Not working with Rare anymore because Rare's got this uh, relationship with Nintendo that's starting to blossom now. But they were mm. working with Rare in their early days, which is one of the top companies. So they are kings of the hill, and there is no reason that they shouldn't just keep growing and growing and. Yeah, because they're they're that big. They're as big as EA, and EA is still around today and is still a major player. It's kind of surprising that we don't think of Acclaim in the same light. Exactly. And then it all goes wrong. But we'll talk about that next time. We will. All right. I guess we will talk about that next time. (laughs) And we'll see you next time in part two of The History of Acclaim. The Fall. Check out our show notes at tcwpodcast.podbean.com where we have links to some of the things that we discuss in this and other episodes. You can check out Alex's blog at videogamehistorian.wordpress.com Email us at tcwpodcast at gmail.com and follow us on Twitter at tcwpodcast. Intro music is Airplane Mode by Josh Woodward, found at joshwoodward.com forward slash airplane mode, used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Outro music is Bacterial Love by Rollum Music, found at freemusicarchive.org used under a Creative Commons attribution license.